Do they even have any, uh, is there any odds on what the new name will be? I have no idea. I don't think I've heard anyone speculate. There isn't, like, leaks and, um, whatever. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty easy to think of California place names. I'm going for Carmel. I'm going for Big Sur. Ooh, ooh, Big Sur's a good one. <laughs> Mammoth? Mammoth would be really good, yeah. I think they're going to change the scheme again. It'll be dog names now. <laughs> yeah. Fido. Fido. <laughs> <laughs> Rover? Poodle. <laughs> Doberman. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. This episode is sponsored by Dev Mountain. Dev Mountain is a coding school with the best world-class learning experience you can find. Dev Mountain is a 12-week full-time development course. With only 25 spots available, each cohort fills quickly. As a student, you will be assigned an individual mentor to help answer questions when you get stuck and make sure you are getting the most out of the class. Tuition includes 24-hour access to campus and free housing for our out-of-state applicants. In only 12 weeks, you'll have your own app in the App Store. Learn to code. It's time. Go to devmountain.com slash ifreaks. Listeners of iFreaks will get a special $250 off when they use the coupon code iFreaks at checkout. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 103 of the iFreaks show. Today on our panel, we have Pete Hodgson. Uh, hello from Hollywood. Andrew Madsen. Hello from Salt Lake City. And our guest today is another Minneapolis resident, Martin Greider. Oh, now what do I say hello from? <laughs> hello from Minneapolis. Hello from, you know, Minneapolis, wherever. I just usually say something inane. But <laughs> I'm, we, I'm actually on the University of Minnesota campus right now. Go, go. University of Minnesota sports ball team. Sports balls. Well, <laughs> I think it's baseball at this point of the year. Go locally hockey. affiliated sports team. Go for hockey's done. Everyone leaves. That's just how it goes. But Martin, we brought you on the show to talk about game development. Excellent. A subject near and dear to my heart. There we go. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, what you've been doing? Yeah, I'm a freelance iOS developer. I've been uh, an iOS native developer for about six years now. Uh, and my first app was a game, and I just developed it in my spare time. I had a game idea that I had you know, kind of had on the back burner for a long time, and I thought, you know, it would really be a good fit for this iPhone thing that I've been playing with for a year and love. And... Uh, you know, the SDK was announced and stuff, so I, I started downloading tools and playing around with them. And I think it was about three months from start to having something in the store. I think it came out in February 2010, if I remember right. And that was called Action Chess. And it's like a pretty simple puzzle game with chess pieces that moves like chess pieces and kind of come up the board like Tetris. So it's kind of a cross between chess and Tetris. <laughs> And uh, so, yeah, anyway, so then I've been doing freelance development for about two and a half years. 
just for different clients. I worked for a company called Recursive Awesome locally uh, in the Twin Cities and got to do a bunch of different apps for Best Buy. And I worked on the BuzzFeed app for a little bit. A bunch of bigger, there's Anderson Construction. No, it's Anderson something. Oh, shoot. I can't remember. But a bunch of different clients. Wait, wait, and Windows? Anderson Windows? <laughs> I think it's Anderson Peterson or something like that. Oh, or okay. That's something else. Anderson. Yeah, it's a totally different. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, but I've always been interested in game development. I uh, had been going to our local chapter of the IGDA um, even before I started doing iPhone stuff and just uh, hobnobbing there. I had one game that I built before I got into iPhone stuff in Flash. It was the one and only project I ever did in Flash. <laughs> you can still play it online at uh, go-tetris.com. It's another kind of uh, board game hybrid with puzzle game, which if you if you look at all the games I've done, you'll sense a theme. Uh, I'm really into board games, especially abstract strategy games and uh, puzzle games like Tetris. Um, so I tend to have a lot of ideas that combine one or more of those. And uh, yeah, so I try and balance my time now between producing my own games and building client projects that pay the bills. <laughs> I'm looking at one of your games called For the Win, and it, yeah. looks, it looks like this is uh, also available as a physical game. Yep, Did that was actually done for a publisher. The client was Tasty Minstrel Games. They have a bunch of games, like physical games, that they've made, and they kind of wanted to dip their toes in the water and do a small game for iOS. And uh, it ended up being kind of a bigger project than I think anybody thought it was going to be. Just because a game is small physically <laughs> does not mean it's an easy one to convert or to produce. And I think that was a big challenge on that project. But yeah, that came out, I think, uh, that was my first freelance project. So I, I kind of headlined that up and I said, okay, well, I'm going to quit my day job and hopefully I can make it work from here. So when you say physical game, do you mean like a board game or do you mean like run around in the world type physical game? No, it's a a, a board game. Yeah, okay. so that one in particular is a tile laying game that where I mean the box is very small because it just contains these little uh their ceramic tiles um and there's not that many of them. I think every player has 8 or 10, I can't remember. You said something there around it being just because it's a simple or it's a simple idea, it's not simple to build or something like that. Can you, like, what, what was it that made it tricky to, to execute? Well, I think partly it was that I had never done one before. So it's a complex <laughs> application, right? And uh, there's a challenge, too, around AI. So any, any board game uh... where you can play against the computer, you know, you're going to have to write some kind of AI for it. And so I was lucky to work with someone on that project. So I didn't, I didn't have to write the AI myself, but it turns out, so the, it's, it's a deceptively simple game, right? It's one of those where you, you lay tiles and you're, the goal of this particular game is to get, uh, you have, I think, four different types of tiles and you want to get, or I think it's five actually, and you want to get one of each type next to each other on the board that are your color. And so on your turn, you can do any number of things. You can place a tile, but it can't be next to any of your tiles. You can move a tile, just one square. You can flip the tile and perform its associated action. So each of these five different types have a different associated action, and all of those, of course, had to be programmed in, and the AI has to choose between all of these myriad of possibilities. I mean, the problem space is very large. And the, the other thing I think would say, I would say about that statement in particular that I made 
is that so this is a small game that fits on a table and really like it seems like oh all you're doing is sliding these tiles around you're maybe flipping them like the number of interactions is fairly small but actually like most board games even fairly complex big box games that have a lot of different stuff going on the interactions are still going to be pretty small i mean ultimately you're talking about the same gestures that most apps have to deal with right like you're your drags, your taps, that kind of thing. So I think my point was really meant to be that the, just because a game is small doesn't mean its interactions are fewer than a game that's larger. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that that does that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's funny. I never really it only just it only just occurred to me, and this is going to sound really stupid, but it only just occurred to me that kind of building games, the interactions are just a lot richer. Like the, the logic might be super simple, but the, the polish, the amount of polish and the amount of interactions is probably the bar is higher than if you're building a to-do app or building a, I don't know, like a more line of business kind of functional type app. I definitely think that's true. <laughs> it's definitely one of the bigger challenges with game development. It's mm. just, uh, I think... We call it, there's a term, a juiciness. <laughs> juiciness is kind of the amount of sort of gloss that you've added on top of the whatever it is that makes it sort of more fun to play, more fun to look at, and more fun to interact with. And this is kind of a tangent into kind of interaction design, I suppose. But do you tend to focus, when you're building out one of these games, Do you would you tend to kind of start off by laying out the kind of the mechanics of the game and kind of just get it to work but but with zero juice and then kind of polish and add juice on top of that or do you tend to kind of you know which way do you slice that do you, do you kind of get one screen or one type of interaction like super polished before you finish off the game or do you focus on the mechanics first or have you have you got found anything that works better or worse so the the first thing you said is exactly what i tend to do <laughs> okay. and i think that's part of being a you know, an agile software developer is like you want it to kind of work first and then you're going to iterate and build different pieces sort of on top of it or add the juice, as it were, on top. And um, I think that speaks kind of to what I'm interested in about games as well because I'm not a designer, like a graphic designer. I'm very much a programmer. So the games that I'm interested in, like I tend to be more interested in them for their game design, for their... uh you know, the way that they make me think in a different way, as opposed to the way that they're fun or they, you know, they kind of look or what they do that's different, which a lot of designers actually do start from that point and, and come from a kind of a different perspective. Um, for me, it's all about like the game design and the, the interestingness of the game itself. So I want to make it playable right away. And then I'll add kind of the stuff on top of it that I think is is necessary to sell a game, which is should not be underestimated. <laughs> I can I can kind of imagine as well that the for depending on the type of game, but the game mechanics, like the playability, is also something where you end up just like with UI, you might kind of iterate on that a bunch of times and put stuff in front of users and get their feedback. I can imagine the game like the mechanics of like what makes this game fun is something that you have to just experiment on people's brains and see what Absolutely. And you know, it's probably even more difficult, I think, than like well, I shouldn't say that. But I think it is just as difficult as good UI design, right? Like, it's a very difficult problem, um, making a game fun. I think there was, I was in a panel uh, with a, a guy, Chip Peterson. I, I was watching a panel by a guy named Chip Peterson, who is like 25 years in, in AAA game development experience. And he was 
uh, I think the panel is called um, what's game development really like or something like that. And his first slide said, you know, it's difficult to complete a game. It's, it's even more difficult to complete a game that's uh, fun. And then it's even more difficult than that to make money off of a game that you made. You know, so it's, those are kind of the hierarchy of, you know, how difficult things are. Like, uh, it starts off just trying to make a game. Well, that's actually pretty hard. Martin, had you done any game development before iOS? I, I think you, you did mention a, a Flash. I did mention one. Yeah, so that Flash game that I developed is the first game I had done. So all my games have been very small in scale and with one or two exceptions solely developed by me. And that's pretty atypical, I think. Like even indie games, and I'm putting air quotes around that, are typically a, a smaller team rather than just an individual. And I I didn't realize that like going into it. And <laughs> But I guess for the win, for example, there was a team. I mean, there was a graphic designer on that project. I said there was an AI developer. So even though I did all of the iOS stuff, I can't take sole credit for that app. <laughs> the thing I was going to lead into and, and ask about is speaking about game design particularly, but also, I mean, game like game mechanics design, but also some of the other stuff that you were just mentioning, the maybe more high-level juiciness stuff. Um, how, how does that maybe differ when you're designing a, a mobile game versus you know, console video game, or I, I think it's especially interesting because you've done this board game conversion, but how do you maybe have to modify things to work on a phone versus a board game? I see those as very different experiences. Yeah, I agree. Well, I actually did a whole talk on uh, mobile board game conversion at uh, the Big DM Developer Conference in San Francisco last year. And I think the takeaway, if there was, well, I don't know if this is true, but one of the things that I, I talk about a lot is just uh, how the experience of mobile is actually closer to ex the experience of, of a physical board game than most of the other digital game experiences. For instance, on a, on a standard computer or on a console, for instance, where you've got a controller. Just because in mobile, your interface is generally touching something or dragging something around. You're moving something in the screen. It's, it's that touch interaction. And so it, it lends itself very well to mobile board game conversion, I think. Uh, and the other point I was going to make, um, this wasn't so much in response to you, but uh, to something else that had been said, is that game design that we discussed being very difficult, um, the act of coming up with an interesting game or a fun game, you know, you can kind of sidestep that by taking an existing game like a, a physical board game and converting that. And then you've sort of got, it's going to be as fun, hopefully, as the other game already was. And so, so somebody's already done all that work of like figuring out like, oh, what makes this game fun for you? <laughs> and it's just a nice way of sort of just doing the easy part, which is the actual application, right? I like that idea. And I'm, I'm kind of curious to know how you ended up in a position to do, uh, well, for, for the win in particular, how did you make the connection with the, the company that published the physical game and sort of get this gig? Yeah. Did they come looking for you or was it a game you liked or what? You know, I had been bugging, uh, there's a guy, Michael, who kind of runs the company, Michael Menendez, and I had been bugging him about um, doing a conversion of a game that I really like that they've published. Not that I didn't like that game, but just th that game hadn't been out yet, so I actually worked on it before it was released physically. Like it had been a Kickstarter that was successful, but they also have they have another game in their catalog um, that I think is one of the ones that sort of made them an, a name. 
and I'm really spacing the name of the game right now, but it's a deck building game that's kind of kind of a sci-fi theme. Anyway, I had been bugging Michael about working on that and trying to port that, and so he kind of knew about me. And I think I even maybe pitched him just a license deal where I would for that's there's a bunch of different ways that these things get produced, and one of them is just to sort of like a video game company will come along and license the product. And I think I pitched him that, and then he decided he wanted to do it in house, do kind of put together a team. I was still freelance, but he, you know, he brought together the team. And then, uh, I can't remember if he put out a call, like for developers, or if he just contacted me directly because I had already been talking to him. But that's how that sort of came about. For a long time, I was really wanting to do these conversions. Uh, I think the Carcassonne app was like, you know, the first one in the app store, and then, there were a few others that sort of started trickling in. I think by the time I was really wanting to do it, Ascension was in there too, which is another great, fabulous conversion. And so that had been something that I really just wanted to do, was work on these board game conversions. And uh, so I had been talking to different publishers, kind of trying to get my foot in the door already. What happens if you cheat, or not cheat, but I guess if someone just says, oh, I really like Settlers of Catan or whatever, and... I'm just going to make a game and call it Settlers of Flatan. (laughs) (laughs) What happens? Does Apple even... I guess I'm guessing Apple doesn't go and check to see if you have copyright, but does someone actually get it yanked out of the store? The bigger companies like Mayfair owns Settlers of Catan. They will definitely pull that down. You know, there's the Digital Millennium Copyright Act or whatever. You know, they can send the takedown notice. Uh, and I think they send it to Apple. They don't send it to, you know, the XYZ company. But so those, you know, Mayfair is a very large company and they can afford to do that. They probably have some lawyers. Whereas most board games are actually produced by smaller companies. Tasty Minstrel, for example, I'm sure does not have a lawyer on staff. They probably have somebody that they, you know, contact as their counsel, but they, uh, you know, it would be more expensive for them to go after a little, you know, somebody. But on the other hand, you know, they probably don't have any, well, I shouldn't say that, but the, it's unlikely that they have games that are as popular as Settlers of Catan, right? That somebody is going to write a clone of, you know, cloning in general is a really big problem in game development, uh, especially with kind of the simpler puzzle games that I'm a big fan of. I don't know if you guys have already talked about threes on the podcast, but that was a big deal. The 2048 kind of came out. I think it was within weeks, like a week or two weeks after threes released. You know, somebody had built 2048 just in, in JavaScript, and then it was maybe another week before it was in the App Store. Yeah, and it made me sad because I saw my brother playing 2048, and I kind of tried to tell him, oh, well, you should try the, the original game. And He pretty much didn't even believe me that threes was the real thing because 2048 is so popular with all his friends. He's in high school. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it made me feel bad, but I thought Threes was an excellent game. Yeah, and I think, you know, most people who try Threes after 2048 agree that it's a little bit more of, you know, there's something more to it. Like, it's just more challenging. It's, you know, it's a better designed game. But yeah, it's, it's, it is a sad kind of state of affairs where that kind of thing can happen. There was another really kind of famous cloning issue with Triple Town. And um, I, my understanding of the story, and I might be slightly off here, but the, it was a, a developer contracted with a publisher to build this game. 
but I think the developer had come up with the game. I'm not 100% sure. And they retained the rights even after the publisher canceled the project. So they, they were able to finish it off and publish it. But like within weeks of it being published in the App Store, the publisher had actually done another version of the same game and put it out there. I think it was called Yeti Town. So it was like not just the same name or the same game underneath, but like, you know, it stole a lot of the, the interactions of the mechanics, the name. And um, yeah, that was a big deal for a while. And I remember reading somewhere that there's 500 games a day released in the App Store, or that that was the average last year. Wow. And, you know, you go and you look through them. I mean, you can find feeds and, and look through all the games that have come out, the new games. And the vast majority are, you know, games that haven't done, they're not doing anything new. A lot of them are slots games. A lot of them are card games. And, and there are 50 versions of that same card game. So it's a, it is definitely a problem, I think, in the App Store. So if you're a fledgling indie developer and you want to, create partnerships with publishers, things like that, and you've got ideas for games. How do you protect what ideas you have? What are people doing? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure that there is like a, a definite tried and true way. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think being first to market is a big deal. So I wouldn't recommend if your game, especially if it's a simple idea, I wouldn't recommend you go telling everybody about it. I think you should make it and put it in the app store and uh, hope for the best. I mean. It's very difficult to publish, to partner with a publisher, especially in mobile. And there's arguably beneficial as well. Like in the early days, you know, everybody, it's hard to say in early days, I just mean like five years ago, right? There were, I think, more publishers that had more clear value. They provided clear value to the developers. Um, just in that they sort of had already been around. Often, because in, in traditional game development and console game development, that publisher model was kind of the standard for a very long time. And it's actually only with the latest iterations of the consoles, like the latest generation of consoles, that developers can go directly to the console and get their games even on those systems. You know, it used to be you had to have a publisher to even talk to the console manufacturer. I guess my point is that the, the publishers at that point had kind of an established base. And they were the ones that knew, you know, who to market to. They kind of, you know, had industry contacts. And so early on, I think the, the games that went with publishers, early on in the App Store, games that went with publishers tended to do a lot better. And I think now we're seeing a situation where it's kind of returning to that. I think they went away from that for a long time. Like it had no bearing whatsoever for a while. And I think now we're back at a situation where marketing outside of the App Store itself really does have a big influence on whether your game is successful. So those publishers that have other media outlets that can get your, your game in front of eyeballs through other means other than directly in the App Store, um, they're going to have an advantage. Or give you uh, they can give you an advantage, rather. I'm not sure if that answered any of your question. No, it, it, definitely, <laughs> it definitely did. So if publishers are maybe less useful to the indie developer now. Are there people that have, have taken their place? Are there other ways you can go to help get your word out or get help with things that you may not be that good with? Yeah, you know, actually, I, I think I was arguing that they have kind of come back into being, you know, useful or prominent. And uh, I think that developers, independent developers, sort of realize that they can't do everything, that it's very difficult to do everything themselves. 
And so that sort of niche of being the marketer is kind of back to being valued again. And uh, I think, you know, if anyone who is an app store developer who has apps in the store is probably getting, well, I don't know, it used to be a lot more, but now I think probably once or twice a month, I get completely unsolicited uh, messages from these people who want to market your apps, right? And they're some of them market, some of them call themselves publishers, but some of them kind of call themselves marketers or app store marketing specialists, app store SEO. There's all kinds of different labels, but there is definitely a niche there. I think those people wouldn't kind of exist, but I, I sort of look at them as, as one of the scourges of app development. Like they're, <laughs> they, you know, they're, they're kind of trying to, uh, you know, be the middleman or be, uh, they're, uh, somehow like leeching off of your success, right? Okay. It's kind of funny. I actually was, uh, so I'm, I'm working at a client in, in Hollywood at the moment and it really is kind of like Hollywood. Like everyone, everyone in their spare time is an actor or a movie producer. And my Uber driver the other day was a movie producer. <laughs> and so I got tagged to him about like how the movie industry works and he kind of described it pretty similarly. There's all of these middlemen involved and like, some of them are providing a lot of value, but most of them are just absolute sh like shyster ripoff merchants. And he was kind of saying it's frustrating because you kind of need, sometimes you need them to be there. And the ones that are really good are really good and provide a lot of value, but there's no way of knowing which ones are good and which ones are just going to take you for a ride. So it kind of sounds like there's similar, similar things in different industries. Just like software consultants. Hey. <laughs> Some are really good. <laughs> Some will take all your money. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I didn't make that leap myself. I don't know what that says about me. <laughs> Some provide the long con, where you just give them a little bit to think they're putting good money. But well, and I think the real comparison is recruiters, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's I similar. That's true. Yeah, similar to the app store marketers. I have, you know, my recruiters flood my inbox constantly. And I think, you know, some of them probably do have jobs, but, you know, to, how would I know? <laughs> I have to respond yeah. to all of them. So my, um, of course, my immediate reaction to hearing this was wondering whether you could build an app for that. So I was like trying to figure out if you could make like a Yelp for like movie producers. But Oh, nice. Yeah. My Uber driver slash movie producer buddy did not um, think that that would be a successful proposition, but. You never know. Maybe there's maybe there's one already out there, or maybe whoever's listening who decides to build that, I'd like a one percent cut, please, or five percent actually. I'll go for five percent cut of your profits. Gross, gross, <laughs> not. And we do have the legal language in the iFreaks acceptance. <laughs> so very, we'll say it very, this. very quickly at the beginning. <laughs> Make all those indigestion. Subliminal, you know. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's funny because that niche within the app store marketing world is like, there's probably like 50 apps for that, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think very few of them have had any real success, but I think I downloaded, there was a period there where I was downloading different like app discovery apps all the time. I don't know if you guys played around with any of those, but the first one and the only one that I still use is App Shopper. Do any of you use that? Yeah, I have, I have used it. Well, particularly the website. I know they also have an iOS app. I mostly just use it to keep track of things that I want to buy. And so they have a wish list functionality. 
and I just put it on there. And then it, it'll actually automatically email you if anything on your wish list goes down in price. So it's one of those like, you know, oh, it's going on sale, and it'll tell me tell me about it. You know, not that I buy a lot of apps, <laughs> and so the ones that I'm like, eh, it's especially the AAA, you know, like big developers. They don't need my money. I feel like I'm not going to pay ten dollars for this one. I know it's going to go on sale in, in two weeks. Yeah, I mean, I sometimes feel like I'd rather give the small developers their full price when things are not on sale. But if it's Angry Birds or something, I don't really care. I mean, they they know full well what they're doing by putting the game on sale. So switching gears just a little bit, I kind of wanted to ask you about some of the technical parts of game development. So I, I haven't really actually done any game development, although that's not 100% true because when I very, very first started iOS development, when the iPhone SDK beta was out, the first thing I started trying to make was a game, and I didn't know anything about game development, but I, I was a Mac developer, so I knew something about you know how the frameworks worked. And I just started, I had like UI views that were on screen, and the, I was moving those around with my own layout and animation code, and uh, it didn't really go anywhere. It, I kind of <laughs> couldn't, didn't know what I was doing, and it, it turned into a mess. But so that's my that's the sum total of my game development experience. But I wanted to hear about um, what you use to do game development. I know there's like Sprite Kit and Cocos 2D and a number of those kind of things out there. Yep. So I've played around with both of those, and we actually have the maintainer of Cocos 2D is local, and he's a good friend of mine, Scott Lemke. He also wrote Chipmunk Physics. But so I, I think I, I did a talk one at one point about Cocos 2D and, you know, I think most of the playing around with it that I've done was for that talk. And, uh, I wrote Tetris in it. <laughs> that's, that's my kind of my hello world for whatever, whenever I'm doing, learning a new platform. But I think, you know, there's some, something to be said for just native development uh, in UIKit. Uh, I mentioned earlier, uh, although I think we weren't on a podcast yet that I have a framework that I tend to use for simple games, especially for board games and grid-based games in general, that's uh, just a, a couple of classes, really. It's very simple that I threw up on GitHub called uh, Generic Game Model. <laughs> it's pretty unoriginal sounding, but all it does for you is kind of set up your multidimensional arrays and uh, allow you to set their state. And so I, t I tend to use just enums, just very simple enums for state. And so then in the game, I can, the display is separate. So it's got a UI view that kind of looks at this model and says, oh, how many, you know, what's our grid type? First of all, are we a hexagonal grid? Are we just a square grid? You know, what are we drawing? And then if you, you subclass it to tell it how to draw each state. So it just speeds up. You know, I can do a prototype of a simple game in, you know, five or ten hours. Whereas, you know, if I was writing all that stuff boilerplate, it would be another five hours on top of that. So it's, it's not saving a lot. But uh, I've used that for most of my just simple board games, especially. Um, and that again, that's all UI kit. So there's no um, fancy animations there. When you get into sort of real game development, which really just means like kind of real-time animation, um, usually you're talking about an OpenGL view. You know, uh, that's what Cocos 2D does, and that's what SpriteKit does. They're just essentially presenting a window that is an OpenGL view, and then they make it easy to draw sprites onto that window. And you can update the sprite. And almost all the time, there's a timer, or what they call a game loop, and that loop is going to run every, you know, 30 times a second or 60 times a second. 
and you're going to move those sprites around every second or every every time that that tick happens. And uh, you know, I know about that architecture and and that world, but it's kind of different from sort of traditional iOS development. You have it's it's very event driven, right? Like usually it's a gesture that's kicking off some animation or something's happening um, as a result of an event, rather than sort of the other way where you're you're updating every second or every you know three sixty times a second or whatever. So it's for me, like it's always kind of been, it feels backwards to work in that, <laughs> the, uh, the game loop world, but I don't know. I don't know if that helps anything. But yeah, I mean, obviously you can do whole talks on sort of game architecture. The, obviously there's Unity and Unreal and other like sort of 3D engines, but Unity is used a lot for 2D as well that you can go to. And then you're not even, you know, you're not even in the world of iOS. You're not using Objective-C anymore. I've played around with Unity a bit, and uh, the uh, one of the other sort of architectures for games uh, that comes up a lot is this component architecture, where sort of each thing keeps track of its own state, I guess, is one way of thinking about it, and Unity is an, an, a component architecture. And essentially, the, each component like has its own game loop, or gets a, gets a callback from the main game loop to say, oh, do you want to update now? So if you're if you're using UIKit for all your stuff, it sounds to me like setting up the game loop and all of that is just up to you. It's not. I mean, UIKit doesn't provide that, right? Other than right and the NS timer, right? right so a timer. I, <laughs> yep. So I think for Action Chess, actually, I did have an NS timer in there, and it. But it, all it's doing is like moving this whole grid upward slightly. You know, every tick, or actually not even every tick, but every you know something every slice of time, which I think is, it depends on the level as to how often that happens. But, you know, most of my games don't have a real-time component. They're not a thing where you're like, there's a whole category of games in the App Store that are dexterity games where you're trying to, you know, avoid things or you're trying to move around things or, you know, cannibals where you're an endless runner. I mean, that's a whole genre of games now that all came out of that one game. Yeah, and I don't, I don't tend to do a lot of that. I tend to focus on games where there's something in front of you and you're trying to solve a problem or you're trying to solve the puzzle, maybe iteratively, if that makes any sense. And board games are a good example where, you know, there's nothing really moving during the time that you're thinking about your turn. Like, what, you're just kind of looking at the game state and trying to figure out, like, oh, what's the best move for me to make right now? My next question was going to be, how do you deal with physics? Because I know that physics engines are a big part of a lot of game engines, and I guess UIKit has UI Dynamics now, but I don't think that's really intended to be used for game physics, but it sounds like maybe the games that you mostly work on don't really need a physics engine, at least nothing too serious. Yep, so, the, yeah, I mean, the UIKit Dynamics stuff is about as, as much as I need, really, <laughs> because I'm not making those physics games. But I I have played around with a bunch of different physics engines and just kind of get how they feel, get a feel for how they work, um, but yeah, I don't, I guess I can't taste too much about that other than that. So going into that world where you're, you've got a real time game where there's stuff happening every, you know, all the time without interaction is kind of adding a layer on top of whatever game it is that you're sort of making abstractly. And then, um, adding physics to that is like adding another layer. And then adding 3D, if you, if you go that route is adding 10 times. <laughs> it's, it's kind of how it, it works. So, I mean, I probably wouldn't 
Well, it depends on what kind of game you're making. But if if you're making a physics game where maybe you're balancing stuff or something like that, like yeah, then you, of course you're going to add the physics engine right away. But for a lot of games, you could probably layer the physics on top in a polish stage, right? Right, where you're you're saying, oh, now I really want things to kind of react to each other in a more interesting way. Let's add some physics engine onto that so that you can model the different things that are going to, when they collide, like what happened, what way do they bounce or whatever. So a while back, you mentioned the IGDA for people that want to get involved with kind of gamer community in, in their area. Can you tell us a little, bit, a little bit about that? Yeah, so the International Game Developer Association uh, is the IGDA. It's it's a the biggest organization sort of dedicated to um, helping with game development and game game developer issues specifically. I know that they have chapters almost everywhere throughout the U.S. and I'm not so much sure about the rest of the world. I know that there's a lot in Europe, but it definitely depends on where you are. Our local chapter is not even like an official subchapter of the parent organization. I think like the parent organization is very loose about um, requiring their subchapters to sort of be members or to, you know, pay dues and that kind of thing. So for instance, like I think, you know, we have a really big active chapter. We have two or three meetings a month. Our biggest meeting has two presenters every month. Uh, usually there's like a 15-minute shorter presentation and then a longer 45-minute to hour-and-a-half presentation. And there's anywhere between 80 and 100 people at that meeting. And then we also have a, a VR spin-off meeting that's probably half that number of people um, solely dedicated to VR and also other weird hardware stuff, game-related, of course. And then uh, we also have an event where we get together and meet in a bar and just play video games. Uh, and then Actually, some quite a bit of board games as well that are mostly made locally. Every once in a while, we'll have a screen that's just dedicated to Towerfall or some something that somebody wants to play. Um, but generally, it's multiplayer, single-screen games, and generally, they're made locally. But the parent organization is actually one of those that has a... I forget the exact status, but it's like a 5013-something that allows them to lobby Congress. And so they do things like, you know... In, when some senator speaks up against video games, they are the ones saying, hey, wait, wait a second, video games are actually good for you, and here's all the studies that prove it. <laughs> That's interesting. I, I, I knew there was a chapter of the IGDA here in Salt Lake City. I kind of am very loose acquaintance with the guy who runs that, and but I didn't really know that much about it. It sounds like you've got a lot of great stuff going on, at least in Minneapolis. Yeah, I think so. It's very like regional. And I think the parent organization is based out of San, uh, Seattle, I believe. And they have a really big, you know, local scene that's, you know, kind of more around, I guess, the parent organization. But I, I mean, there are people that work on the parent organization all over, but the, uh, each region has, you know, it varies quite a bit as to how much they're involved in the parent organization and also like what they're doing. So it's, totally up to the individual chapter, um, you know, how active it is. The, another thing that the parent organization does is provide health insurance for freelancers and, uh, you know, some of that more businessy stuff. If you're a, you know, a, a game development studio, like you might be, you might have more interest in IGDA for, you know, kind of all the stuff that they provide to you. That's very cool. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a neat organization. 
help people, help the little, little people out with you know running their businesses when you know they want to be developing or working on their games. So, Martin, anything else you want to add before we get to the picks? I don't know. <laughs> I should plug my games, probably. There right? we go. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the last game, I'll just plug the, the one, the last one that I uh, put in the App Store. It came out in August. We actually had a uh, pretty good re- reception on it. Um, we had a five-star review at Pocket Tactics and a four-and-a-half-star review at Touch Arcade. So some really good reviews. It was not featured, so <laughs> I'm not a millionaire or even like a thousandaire, really. <laughs> but, you know, I made some money. Uh, it's called Ketchup. It's a two-player abstract strategy game, a very simple hexagon-based game with, I think, five rules. So very easy to pick up. You can play multiplayer uh, over Game Center. It has some Game Center leaderboards and achievements. And uh, it, I think the probably the most challenging thing I did was that it's localized in seven different languages. <laughs> it's also um, completely skinnable. So even though it's all UI kit, uh, you can change the color scheme kind of at will from the menu as well. And it'll change all the colors of the game. Yeah, Ketchup's a cool game. You gave a demo of that last year sometime, right when it came out, and I downloaded it and I played it for a bit. It's fun. I'm not a huge gamer, but I enjoyed it. Thanks. So before we get to the picks, I want to mention that we are printing up some t-shirts, iFreaks t-shirts. You know, if you want to be like those stylish people on the podcast, you can order one. You can get them at Teespring, that's T-E-E, spring.org, slash iFreaks. And they're available for two weeks, 13 days from when this episode is released. So hop on it, and you can look like stylish people on this podcast. Minor correction, it's teespring.com slash ifreaks. There we go, teespring.com. But we'll have a link in the show notes. And I'm really excited about this. I don't know why, but I'm very excited that we get our our own ifreaks t-shirts. And they're available in unisex, long sleeve, hoodies, and women's tees. So there's styles for everybody. Very nice. Do all of your guests get one? <laughs> yep, for twenty dollars. <laughs> for appearance in twenty dollars, you can get your own. T-shirts. Hey, I'm paying twenty dollars for mine. So this is true. I'll be getting one. And I'll be paying twenty dollars. Oh, I like these tentacles. Actually, that's pretty cool. <laughs> so, picks, Pete. We have time for the fastest picks in history. My first pick is this. Kind of relates to the topic. This it's a, it was a really fun talk that I got to witness in person at a JavaScript conference, but ignore the fact that it's a JavaScript conference. And it's a, this guy that works at Heroku, and he was talking about, he does game development on the side, and he was talking about like how you can apply some of the, philo- the, the patterns and the philosophy of game development to uh, your regular kind of development, like non-game development. I'm mainly picking it because it was just a really fun talk. Like it's just, it just super fun, engaging, funny talk, but there's also some really good nuggets of wisdom uh, hidden in there around functional programming and game loops. And yeah, it's a, it's a really fun talk. So uh, that's my first pick. Uh, my second pick, I'm guessing I'm going to pick someone else's pick is this movie called Indie Game, the movie, which is a fun movie. If you haven't watched it about indie game development, it was interesting for me because I'm not coming from that world. So it was kind of cool. My third pick is a write-up on Euro games, so these kind of European board games like Settlers of Catan, whatever. There's this this thing that this guy called Martin Fowler put together, which is like a review of a bunch of different types of board games and like which ones are um, like 
how long they generally take to play, how complicated they are. Um, it's it's fun if you're kind of getting into that world and you don't know the difference between your ticket to ride and your Carcassonne. And then my last pick, unrelated to all this stuff we've been talking about, is the language Rust. Uh, I just listened to a really good podcast interview with two folks involved in Rust on the Changelog, which is also a really good podcast in general to listen to, if you're a fan of podcasts, which you obviously are because you're listening to one right now. And it, yeah, it was a really good episode on Rust, the language. Rust is a really interesting language in general, and they did a really good job of explaining why Rust is interesting. So if you're into Swift and if you're into learning about new languages that will expand your brain a little bit, then I would recommend checking out that podcast to get a taste for why Rust is cool. Done. Excellent. Andrew, what are your picks? Well, I had two picks, but now I have three because Pete's last pick reminded me of something that I was reading yesterday, I think, that was interesting. And it's somebody who, well, the first thing that I thought was funny, and I don't mean this in a mean way, but he said he was a like an expert Swift developer or something like that. And I thought, well, is anyone really an expert Swift developer except for a few people at Apple? But anyway, so this guy is a, a, an experienced Swift developer that um, has recently s started using Rust for something, and he's written a big post about how about Rust from the perspective of a Swift developer, which is kind of interesting. I kind of like these sorts of things because it's easier for me to understand a new language when I can see it sort of compared and contrasted with a language that I'm really familiar with. So that's my first pick. Uh, my second pick is uh, the Arduino Explorer board. So Chuck tweeted a couple days ago asking about people's favorite Arduino boards, and I thought I had already picked this on the show, but I guess I haven't. And uh, this is just an Arduino board that has a ton of sensors and input-output devices all on one board, so you don't have to buy a bunch of shields. You can buy this board and do a bunch of stuff with it just out of the box. And one of the things that it can do is act like a game controller. It's actually shaped pretty much like a like a game controller with a joystick on the left and four buttons on the right. And you can even hook a screen up to it so you could write games that run entirely on Arduino and play them like it's a controller. So that's pretty cool. And my last pick is another video game related thing that I just ran across randomly yesterday called the Analog NT. And this is a NES slash Famicom, I don't know what you'd call it, recreation. It's hardware. And it will play NES and Famicom games. And it's all the original circuitry, so they're using the same CPU as the NES actually used. And it has cartridge slots and connectors for regular controllers, but it's all kind of modern. It'll hook up to your modern TV and it's really nice looking and I just was very impressed with the polished job they seem to have done. I don't think it's actually shipping yet, but um, you can pre-order it. It's $500, so you have to be pretty serious about it, but it seemed really cool. Those are my picks. Martin, what are your picks? That Explorer board sounds really cool. <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything about this, but I, now I got to because uh, you mentioned Arduino. So I've been playing around with this thing called an L3D, which is a it's an LED array. It's eight by eight by eight LEDs. And so, so it's a volumetric display, and uh, it runs on a Spark core. So it's a it's an Arduino like if you haven't played with Spark before. And I made a game for it for the Global Game Jam this year that I call Match L3D. That's kind of a Match Three game, but in this cool uh, LED light lit up LED world. So yeah, the L3D is I guess a pick. And then, uh, because Pete mentioned Indie Game the Movie, I have to plug this other movie called uh, Game Loading that I saw. I, I actually saw it at PAX East, so that was just after the big game developer conference this year. This was the first year I hadn't gone to that in a while. 
so I guess game developer conference too, actually, that's a whole other thing. Game developer conference is awesome. If you're wanting to sort of see what game development is like and kind of get a peek into the entire industry, like game developer conference is the, is the place to go. It's sort of the WWDC of game development. So yeah, game developer conference, uh, game loading is a, it's, it's basically very similar to indie game, the movie, but about, I think, a few more developers in general, and it doesn't kind of, one of the criticisms of Indie Game and Movie has been that it really just followed these very successful story case studies, right? So like, there's like four developers that it follows and they're, they're all super successful by the end. And, uh, that's not the typical game development trajectory. <laughs> and I think, um, game loading does a better job of portraying the industry. And then I was going to plug Top Hat as well, which I've been using. It's just a little, it just goes in your status bar, except it's on a Mac. What is that called? <laughs> the, the Apple bar, the, the menu bar, I guess. Menu and, bar. uh, yeah. yeah. And it just downloads your stats from the previous day and shows them to you, uh, from iTunes Connect. So it's, it's pretty sweet. I think that's it. Okay. I'm going to have the most anticlimactic pick in history. I think we have a bunch of cool picks. Rust, electronics, games. I'm going to talk about something that we stand on. So I, I bought a standing desk a couple of weeks ago and realized pretty quickly that I probably want an anti-fatigue mat to stand on. So I picked up the Cumulus Pro mat and I like it quite a bit. I'm very comfortable. It's almost like I'm standing on a cloud, uh, but it's very nice. So and you know, I've got the Veridesk, so I go up and down quite a bit during the day. If I get tired of standing, I go up and down, and I and it had to. There's an anti-stick in the bottom, so it doesn't move and you don't slip and hit your head. I don't need that as much. And actually put some cardboard from the box underneath it for a pro tip if you actually want to move it out of the way frequently. But Cumulus Pro, anti-fatigue comfort mat. I'm pretty happy with it. That's my pick. It's as anticlimactic as it is. And that's our show. Buy a t-shirt. And we'll see you next week. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at iFreakShow.com slash forum. 